everybody, welcome to another Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive on the goings-on in the hospitality industry. If you're new here, hi, thanks so much for joining me. And if you're old here, hi, thanks so much for coming back. Uh, as you can see, I am in the beautiful Watermark Hotel. I'm sitting in a different location this time. I've been so fortunate because I've been all over the hotel. I was in a suite, I'm at the Ren Bar, now we're in the lobby, but we're like adjacent, Ren adjacent. That's the fantastic Izakaya here at the hotel. Uh, and I'm gonna be talking about all the things going on in the hotel today, but first a little bit about me. So um, I have been covering the DC food and wine and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. It all started with the listareyouwanted.com, the online zine that tells you everything happening in the DC metro area, every food and wine event, every restaurant opening, every promotion going on, it is all there in the list, are you on it.com. Of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, LinkedIn, threads, I don't know, whatever social media platforms you're on, I'm on. And of course, this show now you can download as a podcast or watch it on YouTube, which I think is super exciting and fun. Uh, and let's see, you probably hear me on WTOP. You definitely see me on television. And you hear me every Sunday on Foodie and the Beast, the show that's been on air for 15 years, the only food and wine variety show here in the DC metro area. Okay, so I'm very excited today because I'm doing a lot of different things. First of all, we're gonna be talking a little bit more about the Watermark Hotel with Tara McNamara here. She is the Chief Experience Officer. But then later in the show, um, I'm gonna be talking with restaurateur, TV host, wine trailblazer, and now cookbook author, Rose Previtt. So I'm really looking forward to that. But first, I wanna get into all the amenities and experiences you can have here at the hotel. Tara was the first person that I met at the Watermark Hotel when they opened, mm -hmm. like what, two years ago? Two years ago, September. Oh my God, two years ago, September. So Tara, tell me a little bit about the property and how you, how you became the Chief Experience Officer and what that even means. Well, anybody can build a hotel. It's just brick, mortar, glass, some furniture, some beds, mm -hmm. but it takes a vision and passion and dedication to the craft to be able to create a hotel where you can have experiences and all those experiences not just necessarily in the hotel or ren or perch putt which is our miniature golf out on the perch for 11 stories in the sky right it's just creating the entire capital one center experience and i go on and on about everything that we have to offer as amenities okay well i'd like to hear some of those amenities sure. let's hit that um well you talked about ren already right. and then within ren um we have experience areas that you could book for your team building, your holiday party, a family get-together, girlfriends, mm -hmm. little living rooms that you see around the restaurant. Well, we're kind of like in a little yeah, living room area right that, now. It's the island. I like this island. I like being on my own <laughs> yeah, island. This is your own With my pot of tea, I'm so happy. <laughs> no, um, what I love about the Watermark Hotel is the sort of setup, right? Like it's very spacious and I love being up on the 11th floor and then having all these activations out there. So I know we're in the winter, so a lot of it is kind of settled mm -hmm. down, but can we talk about what's coming in the spring? Sure. Um, speaking of spaciousness, we're sitting above, of, in between 300 spacious suites uh -huh. and all residential style, kitchenettes, live, work, play areas, amazing beds, amazing bathrooms, which you're going to come and visit and right. spend the night one night soon. And then, like I mentioned, we have Perch Putt, which is right out on the Perch, which is a two and a half acre 
Sky Park, Perch Butt is 18 holes of miniature golf, Food Trucks, Rum Roost, which is Northern Virginia's first and only rooftop tiki bar. Right. And then in addition, we have Star Hill Beer Garden. That's expanding to have a restaurant downstairs on the street level right next to oh, Capital that One Hall. Oxen? That's on. That's coming at the end of the year. Oh, okay. End of next year. Okay. And um, Longshot Hospitality just opened Omateo across the street. We were yes. just talking about Mexican foods, Tex-Mex concept for them. Sisters Thai, who's uh -huh. in Mosaic, where right. I always run into you, is opening a, a larger uh, restaurant here, again, by Capital One Hall. Speaking of Capital One Hall, it's a 1500 performing arts center with a Broadway stage. We have uh -huh. Broadway shows coming, Stomp, Share. We just had Jesus Christ Superstar. Amazing. And then um, they also have meeting and private event space for weddings or corporate events. And well, I think that's what's so fascinating about this area. So when I first came out here to the Watermark Hotel, when you first, first opened open, yeah. and REM was opening, like I felt like you guys were like this little silo here of this hotel. And I really didn't understand that really what's happening here is a town center. Mm -hmm, right? Exactly. And it's, it's just amazing because it's on sort of the opposite side of the beltway from the Tyson's area. And it's, it's incredible what's going on there. It's a really interesting project and um, the people that came up with it, obviously there's a vision for it. Like mm -hmm. there's more coming, there's uh, more retail coming, there's more restaurants coming. Mm -hmm. And then we have even across the street, we have um, another restaurant and more retail coming. Right. So this Tyson's East area is making Tyson's Corner is really just the mall now, sure. which we're only one stock away from on the Metro around the corner to the Galleria for high end shopping. So we're kind of the epicenter of Tyson's now mm -hmm. and the hotel and rent and perch button and everything else I mentioned is kind of just the heart of it all. I love it. Excellent. All right. All right. Thank you so much Thank for joining so me much. today, Tara McNamara, Chief Experience Officer. So people should contact you for what? To get why should they contact you if they're coming out here? Well, um, we do have 300 suites. Right. So you're like, you, I will help you with that. <laughs> if you're having an event at Capital One Hall and we have meeting and event space here for retreats and um, for leadership building. Uh -huh. And we also great place to have on the weekends if you're going to have a getaway or you have family in town and you need an extra guest room, just call us. I love it. And I will say you can look at a previous episode where we um, I was did it in a suite. And honestly, if you're coming out here for an extended stay, it's perfect because there's a kitchen and it's spacious. Anyway, I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now we're going to get into Rose Previtt. So this is kind of an interesting story because Rose Previtt reached out to me years ago, years and years ago, when she was getting ready to open up her Compass Rose. And it's really interesting because she wasn't in the industry. Um, but she knew what she wanted. She had a real vision about Compass Rose, this restaurant that she was opening off of 14th Street. But she was very smartly contacted a lot of people in the industry to sort of like flesh out her vision and make sure she was on the right track, which of course she was because she opened up Compass Rose. It wound up being this amazing restaurant that people still love to this day. She does such interesting things there. We'll get into it. But really it was the springboard to Maidan. Now, Maidan became a Michelin-starred restaurant. It's one of the first live fire restaurants in the DC area. I was corrected because I thought it was the first. But what's interesting about it is, is that when you walk in, you walk in to the fire. It is there to greet you um, at the restaurant. And it's just this incredible 
circus of a situation when you walk in, which is what makes Maidan so fantastic. Now, she does lots of other things. She's an incredible advocate for wines from around the world, but especially like from Georgia and Hungary and other areas out there. We're going to get into all of that. But most importantly, the reason why she actually joined me today is because she also has a cookbook. So this woman is a restaurateur. She's a TV host. She is a cookbook author and a wine advocate. And she is here today to talk about all those things with me. So Rose Prevett, thank you so much for joining me nice today. Nice introduction. And to be clear, I would have come no matter what. Okay. Cookbook or no cookbook, because yeah. I, love, I love our conversation. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig down deep today. So let's kind of start a little bit in your past, because you grew up in Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, your parents were not immigrants, but they were children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Children of children? Great grandparents? Their generation is interesting. My grandparents were born in the U.S. Okay. But they're the younger part of the family, so the older kids. We're not. Right. So their generation was kind of divided. The older kids were born in Lebanon and Italy. Mm -hmm. My grandparents were younger in the family line. So okay, they so were they born, were born here. Yeah. But some of those roots carried with you. So how did their, the Italian and Sicilian, correct? Yeah, Sicilian. Yeah. Sicilian and Lebanese, how did those roots affect your childhood and growing up? Like, how did it inform you about food? It was storytelling, you know, mm. I mean, from day one. And I think it's how they told us the story of where we came from. And it was a lot of overcompensating for the fact that we were raised in a tiny town in Ohio where we were the only Italian Lebanese family. Uh -huh. it, you know, I love where I grew up, but it wasn't very diverse culturally. And they immediately knew that if they didn't pass on culture to us, it was going to get lost in mm. our generation for sure. They had already lost the language, neither of my parents were Arabic or Italian mm. and so it's like how else do we pass this on and without even really thinking about it as much as I'm giving them credit for they just started cooking with us uh, it was both I actually think it was a bond they had even though they come from different backgrounds mm -hmm. but both I, real big food culture oh, huge food do you know cultures. what I mean they big a, food culture and they both love to cook and so uh -huh. they just had it in common immediately I think it's part of their love story and then to us as kids from day one you got to hear the stories of our grandparents and what I call in the book our inherited immigrant experience right. all came through food. Because when you're telling a story of how to make it or what ingredient you sub out for whatever because, oh, you live in Ohio, you hear the backstory of, mm. well, actually, we used to use this in Detroit where my mom grew up because we couldn't get the ingredient she used to use in Lebanon. You know, her grandmother used to use in Lebanon. So here we use this. And immediately you're telling a story of, like, heritage, migration, immigration. It's super. I love it. I Well, I it. love it, too, yeah. because I think it really explains how we eat today it informs us on what we put on the table today yeah, do you know what i mean like yeah. especially when you talk about well i didn't have access to this ingredient mm -hmm. so you know i had to use ketchup or i had to use apricot jam instead yeah. of whatever it's yeah. i think it's really interesting how that all informs it and yeah you automatically get a story about the person who also taught you how to source it or mm -hmm. why you sub it out. And so you're getting the stories of people and those are the people that they didn't want to get. Right, which I love, yeah, that's so it was, sweet. It was so important and I think, would they have been as overcompensating if we had grown up in Detroit, the Detroit community that my mom did of all Arab Americans mm -hmm. or my dad's Italian American neighborhood in New Jersey? Sure, Probably wait, not. where in Jersey? He's at exit nine, North Brunswick. Okay, I grew up on off of exit 10. Oh, so Although close. really, but like far <laughs> from exit 10, but, um, 
in the uh, Morristown area. Okay, not too far. Yes. Um, but that might, our, that side of the family, which doesn't make the book very much because it's really focused on the region that Maidan covers. And uh -huh. I like to say it's the region from um, Tangier to Tehran and from Batum to Beirut. Mm. So if you can think of that, that swath of land, that is um, the inspiration for a lot of the recipes that are in the restaurant and are in the book. Uh -huh. um, but my Italian side, was an amazing immigrant story in itself. My grandfather had an Italian grocery store. So mm. food there too, as sure. much as my mom's well, And they're Sicilian, I mean, come on. You couldn't help it. Right. Um, but he couldn't, he went to the eighth grade, he didn't even go to high school. You know, their story was this grocery store where mm -hmm. he made Italian sausage sandwiches and was a butcher and a grocer and all these things. So food on both sides. Isn't that amazing? I just have to give him a shout out. I don't yeah. want to out completely. My poor dad, he never gets mentioned in this process. Okay, well, we're mentioning him now. Okay. <laughs> That's good. He's out of the way. Okay, so, well, big shout out to dad, obviously. Yeah. Thank so, thank okay, you. so you leave Ohio. Mm -hmm. Food just informs you. You love it, but it's not your, this is not where you're going in life at that time, right? Yeah, no, as much as it was really important to our upbringing, my mm -hmm. parents were not like, Please go open a restaurant. Right. On the contrary, right. please, whatever you do, don't open a of restaurant. Right. Um, so no, I was in college. I went to college in Ohio, and when I finished, I wanted to get out of a small town as quickly as humanly possible. As one does. And I had my eyes set on DC because I wanted to change the world. Honestly, mm -hmm. I wanted to fix it, and clearly, I'm doing a great job. You are doing a great job. <laughs> Listen. It's all conversation. Yeah. That's how it gets better. It is. And conversations around tables, right? Mm -hmm. We've had some very powerful conversations around tables, around yes. food. And so we can't stop doing that, even on days when it feels like the world's falling apart. But um, that's how I got to DC. And I was 22 and working for Human Rights Watch mm. for free as an intern. I just mm. wanted to be there again to change the world. I'll right. Human Rights Watch. I'll, I'll do whatever they do to fix things. And back then they didn't have to pay you. So I started waiting tables at a bar on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. And if you've been here a long time, I have. you um, might remember a place called Politiki back Oh my God, day. I totally remember that place. It was next to Hawk and Dove and yep. TuneIn, which is still there. But um, Politiki morphed when my business, my now business partner bought a called the Poorhouse. So it's at 6th and Penn Southeast. Okay. And I started waiting tables there. I ended up waiting on my husband. I ended up working for Mike, who's my now business partner. It was right. a really powerful neighborhood gathering place, mm -hmm. um, but it was just to make side money. It wasn't, again, to get me any closer to the culinary world. Sure. It was just because that's all I knew how to do was serve people food mm -hmm. and drink. And so in the course of that, I met a husband. So I, I always joke, he was like the best tip I ever got. Right. Um, you know? but um, and we're still here uh, many years later. Uh -huh. um, but that, yeah, that wasn't the intention. I went to grad school at George Mason. I right. had a master's in public policy. I'm still not thinking food is my life yet. Mm -hmm. And it was still more years down the road. So. so, but your husband, so you guys wind up traveling, right? Yeah, so well, what... just for fun originally. We got engaged in Istanbul and like all these things. But um, it wasn't until NPR asked him to be the Moscow correspondent for NPR that we really started traveling. <laughs> okay. So did you find, was that daunting at first, moving to Moscow? Or were you like, I'm going to take this adventure on, like, full tilt? Yeah, there's a fine line between those two emotions. I started with, oh, I studied abroad in the south of Spain. Right. I can assimilate to other cultures. I was only 29. I'm like, I'm on this great adventure. Uh -huh. And then I got there. Right. And that's when my perspective shifted a little bit. Because was there a massive expat community? Did you have to find it? You didn't speak the language? I mean, what all was that like? All of those things. But I mainly the shift happened when we landed on November 1st and it was snowing like mm -hmm. it doesn't snow until January in Ohio, right? Okay. And it was November 1st. That's when I started to think, oh, 
where the hell am I? Right. What have I done? Right? Do I have a fur coat? Do I have a fur hat? I had where are my I things? I was so unprepared. Right. I was so unprepared. I had no idea how cold cold actually was. Sure. There. So those things started to weigh in. Um, very when you live in a hard what they call hardship places, right? Mm -hmm. um, the cool thing is the expat community is very tight. Okay. And it isn't that I didn't want to meet Russians. I, when I lived in Spain, I learned Spanish immediately. I made Spanish friends. I didn't want to know any Americans while I was there. Right. That was not the case in Russia. I didn't have any language skills. Mm -hmm. Everyone spoke Russian as they should. It right. wasn't on them to it was speak on English you. to me. But I had no language classes. I was dropped into this adventure that wasn't feeling like an adventure. It was feeling like I had lost my mind. Um, and there we were. But the expats took us in. We lived in like a journalist compound that's still there today. They call it Sad Sam is the nickname of this okay. building. The New York Times was up upstairs from us. Mm -hmm. uh, the French Press, the Wall Street Journal, we're all in this like kind of weird summer camp together. Cool. So that part wasn't bad. Yeah. It was just leaving the compound sure. that I got a little lost. I bet. <laughs> yeah. But so at what point did you start traveling from there, eating? Like where, where did this next step for you of food come in? Yeah, I mean, we, I was so lucky to have traveled to 30 countries in three years. I mean, wow. that, David and I did the math. NPR was cool and that they wanted him to cover the whole former Soviet Union. So we didn't just stay in Russia. Right. Oh, and I should mention I wasn't working. So I just tagged along. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a visa. No, how could you? No, no you can't work. Right. So now I'm just tagging along to like hundreds of interviews. And I was learning an enormous amount while David mm -hmm. was doing all the work. But I got to go to a bunch of cool places, countries like... Belarus, Kazakhstan, places that we wouldn't just have jumped off to go to vacation, right. you know? So really traveling, not vacations, travel. Mm -hmm. And you can't help but be inspired or affected by the things you're eating and the people you're meeting. Sure. And that was helping, like happening subconsciously. Uh -huh. And it wasn't until the very, very end of our three-year stint there, um, David's last series of stories was on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, mm -hmm. We took a three-and-a-half-week trip from Moscow to Vladivostok and got off in little villages and cities along the way. And sounds I mean, it is... That sounds insane. I would never tell anyone not to do it. As, okay. as hard of a country as Russia is, it was an epic journey. It was truly one of the, like, this odyssey that we were on, right? Right. Um, biggest country in the world, from one side, from all the way west to all the way east. And we met some of the nicest, most interesting people in the world who were fed in homes that didn't even have running water, but they would like break out preserves and things that they had made the summer before. I mean, it was just such a powerful experience of mm -hmm. hospitality through food. So that was affecting me. But mind you, it's December, right? It's sub zero, right? And we're on this train for three and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. I don't have an iPhone yet. This is David had just bought one on the black market. Okay, so I have no. I'm reading. You're really not connected. I'm not connected. I'm like literally all I have time to do is think mm -hmm. and search my soul. And I know that we're about to go back to DC in a couple right. in a couple months. I'm like, what am I gonna do? Right. What I are you? No work experience. Right. Who's gonna hire me for just traveling for three years and following a man? Nobody. Right. Do I even want to go back into public policy? And so with the snow, you know, snow drenched little wooden houses out the window for hours and hours at a time, I truly had and it like and you create love epiphany. I'm not exaggerating. David can attest to it. Right. And I just really was like, you know what? This is what I love. I love gathering. I love the feeling that I'm getting from all these people, the hospitality of like in this foreign land and this snowy mm -hmm. place where I don't speak the language, being welcomed to homes. I know how to do that. Right. I can actually do that professionally if I want to. And I'm just going to call that guy I used to work for. Um, Mike and see if he'll teach me how to open a bar or like a restaurant and that morphed into Compass Rose. But at the time it was just a little seed planted on the Trans-Siberian. I know, but you do know that there's so many people who think they want that, but really don't want to put in the work oh, yeah. to make that happen. So let's just talk quickly about the vision of Compass Rose because it was, in, plus 
three years, the three years you were gone from DC, yeah. DC went through a major transformation. It did, right? It was a very cool time here. Yes. And I got in just at the very beginning of a huge mm -hmm. change. So it, I got back in 2012. Uh huh. Is that what it was? Yes, 2012. So I spent all of 2012 just researching this idea. Okay. I was still bartending on the side here and there. I was looking for policy jobs, but I'm like, I can't. Now that this is in my head, the seed has been planted, I can't let it go. Right. You're like, this is what I'm doing. But I'm like, how? But I don't know how. There's no mm. book. There's no, like, restaurant owners 101. You have to learn from somebody. You kind of just have to keep asking, like you said. Right. Call people in the industry and say, like, here's But this. that's what I thought was so amazing about you. You really had an idea. You knew what you wanted Compass Rose to be. Yeah. You knew how it was going to feel. Like, when I think of um, people who talk about manifestation. Yeah. I, I feel like you really were doing that. You were like, this is what it's go. This is it. This is what it feels like. This is what it tastes like. This is what it looks like. I'm just figuring out what I'm going to. I just need to figure out how do I get from A to Z in there. There's things. I don't have all the letters filled in. Yeah. You know? And I think if there's any lesson in that, it's just start. Like, right. I think a lot of us get hung up on the logic. Mm. And I was, I was spiking it the whole time. I'm like, logic, this doesn't make sense. I don't know how to do it. But actually, if you just start, and uh -huh. that, and I started by calling people like you, like Amanda McClemens. Sure. Um, I had people, a few people, and some people I just cold called, and they were kind enough to talk to me. Uh -huh. um, otherwise, I was connected through a friend, and I'm like, how do you do this? How did you start? Right. And that was just a baby step. And I tell people, take the baby step. What does it hurt? You know? But it wasn't until the end of that year. Once I found the building that is Compass Rose, and mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to live in it, like my grandfather had lived above the store in New Jersey, okay. I wanted to live above the store. I wanted it to feel like home. I loved 14th Street. The two neighborhoods I was obsessed with back in 2012 and 2013 was 14th Street and Blagden Alley. Because sure. there's nothing in Blagden Alley, but I was like, this is so cool. These buildings are so cool. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know how to find someone to help me do it. Right. I found a guy through Pleasant Pops. Do you remember Pleasant Pops? Oh my Pops? God, I do remember Pleasant Pops. I met the guy that owns Pleasant Pops at a Made in DC conference. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm just doing all the things. I'm right. showing up to stuff being like, maybe I'll find my hands like a treasure right. hunt, a scavenger hunt. I'm just traveling around the city asking people questions. And the lovely guys that own Pleasant Pops said, you know what, there's a real estate agent who actually believes in small businesses who will actually help you because nobody wants to help a girl who's no. Has no idea what she's doing. But that's generated. what was happening back then. I, I wish there was some of that now. It was so cool. I have to be honest. And I sat at St. X on the patio. Right. And he's talking to me. Randomly, we're at St. X. And he goes, you know what? What you're saying to me sounds like this building right here. And he points it with an Compass Rose hand to God. Like, he just points it. He's like, it's not on the market or anything. He's like, but I know the guy that owns it. Do you want me just to talk to him and see? And it was a, a little cafe called Cafe Collage right before that. Right. It had just closed. It right. was empty. It, the timing, it's one of those serendipitous things. You're it's like, like right place, this right had time. to be divine because right. it doesn't make any sense. Again, logic was out the, re like, out the right. door. This is all emotional. This lovely guy, Michael Johns, if you're listening, he's a wonderful guy, he's still in the D.C. area. Um, he helped arrange it. And it was a D.C. deal. You know, it wasn't a super formal big contractor. It's independently right. owned by a family. I signed my lease and I was, you know, I was in. And I, then I was, you know, I had to <laughs> figure it out for real. Right. <laughs> Signing leases is very final. You're like, oh, I have oh, to do this. Now I have yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah, job done. So, okay, so let's just give, for people who have maybe not been to Compass Rose, oh, what was the overarching theme of Compass Rose? International street food. Right. That is my general category. Uh -huh. Because as I was reflecting on what I wanted to give to the DC food community, 
I kept going back to our travels. Because right. Because for three years, all I did was eat and travel. Sure. And David and I, every time we would, you know, be nostalgic or, or debrief about our experience, we were always coming back to travel stories where we found some amazing meal in some unexpected circumstance. Like mm. we got lost and we thought we were going to die and never find our way back. But then we find an amazing waffle. Right. You know, that changed our life. And so I wanted to bring storytelling, <clears throat> excuse me, storytelling and all of those experiences into a menu. So I couldn't think of a better way to do it than kind of incorporate street foods, also simple dishes. Not we weren't going to fancy restaurants. There are no, you were the first you were actually the first Kachapori in the city. Yes. Which is so hard to believe now because Kachapori is such a totally it's such a part of eating in DC, but nationally. I'm so happy. Do you know what I mean? Like but you really did bring tastes and flavors to the table that many people in DC and DC is an educated palate. So much. Um but you really brought those tastes and flavors. Okay, let's fast forward to Megan. So we could go down a real rabbit hole about compass rose and what you learned, <laughs> no, the do's no, and don'ts. Exactly, do you what know what I mean? Were. Like you had to learn a lot. Yeah. But then at what point were you like, now I want to do this? And what? because Megan is really special and unique <laughs> in what it offers. Well, you actually set up the segue. The international street food theme uh -huh. of compass is actually led us to Maidan because I want an outdoor kitchen mm. really badly at Compass and the city wouldn't let me have it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is street food? I need fire. Right. And they're like, yeah, no fire for you on T Street. Sorry. <laughs> so, and not in that building. And it's so well, not God, in that residential no. house. Right. So I had to give up fire. So I told everybody, I'm like, next restaurant, I want fire. Because mm -hmm. that is the most authentic way of cooking. Like, and sure. it's an ancient way. And the food I was making, especially Middle Eastern food, is ancient. Mm -hmm. So I was shown kind of accidentally in the building that's down Maidan. And when I saw these like two big steel beams that extend like this hole in the ceiling and extended to the roof, I cannot explain again. You were like, this is it. moment of right. like, my fire's going to go right here. I uh -huh. just know it. I'm going to make it so. And I did. You totally did. <laughs> so, but so how did you structure with a second restaurant? How did you structure that vision? What did you want from Maidan? And I think for people who don't know what Maidan means, you should explain the word a little bit and how you took it's it's context and put it into your restaurant absolutely i mean everything goes back to gathering that mm -hmm. was the original like the power of people in the same space right and when i was in kiev in ukraine back at the beginning of our russian travels uh -huh. david was covering a presidential election i'm just tripping around the city sightseeing and i kept hearing everybody say go to maidan meet at maidan Right, where is it? And I figured out it's the town square. It's, I think either Independence or Freedom Square is the technical name in Ukraine. It's like a piazza. Yeah, like any other, like a piazza, I mean, square, but people gather to mm -hmm. celebrate as a public, right, during an election or mourn someone who's died mm -hmm. or to rebel. I mean, mm -hmm. both in Georgia and in Ukraine, there's been a lot of rebellions that started in these town squares mm -hmm. for very good reasons most of the time. But um, <laughs> yes. it was powerful to me. And then I realized the words based in Arabic. And I'm like, wait a second, but they use it in Ukraine. Right. And then they use it in Farsi and Hindi mm -hmm. and Arabic. I'm like, wait, so this word is crossing borders. It means the same thing, but it's pronounced differently. Right. And the food of the region that I, you know, that my audience is inspired by is exactly the same. It's a lot of the same things that are made just a little bit differently or pronounced a little bit differently. Mm. But I wanted to extend it into that feeling that people are actually at their core the same. Hmm. Even from a region where people don't always get along because they think they're very different. Right. At the end of the day, they're the same. So this word was really powerful to me. And at the end of the day, 
it also meant to gather. And that's what I wanted my dog to be. I always mm-hmm. wanted it as a not formally trained chef, right? Like I'm less food and chef forward and more experience and gathering. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think we didn't really talk about that with Compass Rose, but when you, because you are not the chef, and yeah. I think it's very important that we make that clear, when you work with people to execute your vision, yeah. that's that's not always easy. It's not you at know all. I mean, it's one thing when I- think it's ever easy. No, 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 but when you're a chef restaurateur, right? You're working in the kitchen with people based on what you know and your knowledge yes. so that you could be like, no, you have to do this, no, you have to do that. But you have a vision and it's based on the taste that you have, right? And the people that you cook with and what, you, what you've learned but you're trusting somebody else actually to put your put your memory on on the plate. Yeah, right. It's a huge trust. So how do you go about doing that? Well, I think there's no other way. Like you said, the taste, right? It's right. the taste that I have and experience in my memory. How do I give that to somebody? And that goes from my family recipes to the recipes I picked up with my travels. Right. So I just take chefs traveling. There's no other answer to me. You, you must go to the place mm-hmm. <laughs> and you must feel it and experience it because it is more than flavor. It's more than cooking techniques. It is, it is the homes that we went into mm-hmm. and we didn't stage in restaurants. Also very anti chefy. I was like, but again, you have to remember this region doesn't have restaurants like that. Like we right. were going to stage, like a lot of um, CIA chefs, right? They go to Europe to stage in fancy right. restaurants. That's not our point. I wanted to like celebrate the women of, the meat, what I like to call the Mina, Middle East, or that Mina region, uh-huh. um, by going into their homes because most of them aren't allowed to work, right? Mm-hmm. They're raising families. They're never given credit for the amazing food that they produce, just like my mother. Right. She produced so much food and, like, she was a full time mom and catered out of our house growing up. And I, I, I recognize that power and how unsung these heroes are to me. So I took the chefs to homes all mm-hmm. over. Um, we went to Morocco, Tunisia. Lebanon, Turkey, and Republic of Georgia. So wow. in a five-week trip to open my dog, I took two chefs traveling all over. Right. We cooked, we ate together. And, you know, I really appreciate how much they absorbed and had those feelings and finally, you know, captured the flavors that I was trying to explain. Sure. But could never have just verbal. You had to actually go there. Sure. And so as you were doing that, you're also advancing your wine knowledge because you're going to these regions and... You're drinking wine. And I do feel like, I have to be honest, I do feel like in the last 15 years, there's been a real expansion of education uh, in the United States specifically that like, you know, you're not just getting wine from, you're not just getting good wine from France, California, or Italy. You know, you can get wine from South America. You can get wine from uh, Australia, Georgia, like all these regions have amazing wines and they all have amazing histories. But I do feel like you were on the forefront of that. Georgia being the first one for you. Like yeah. when I think about you and wine, I think about Georgia oh, first, you know? <laughs> so what was it? What What did you taste? What were you drinking? Were you like, I want this at home. I don't want to just, how do I get this? Well, the flavors were super unique because I was discovering Georgian wine and amphora based wine right. and these unfiltered amber wines, things I had never had before. So all mm-hmm. those flavors were like super exciting and new. But again, going back to the stories, this might be why I married a journalist, but right. like the stories behind 8,000 years of winemaking is really powerful. Things mm-hmm. I had not heard in my bartending years of learning about European wines, right? right. I'm hearing about these stories of families that for 8,000 years have 
Probably like in the Quarbies, right? Like the underground. Yeah. Like it's well, amazing. Quarry, yeah. Which everything they And we're, all the homes in Georgia have their own production. Mm. But for so many years, they were just producing for their family and friends. And then when we're living in Russia, exactly the same time, and obviously Georgia's a border country. Right. Um, I'm realizing that like Russia is the only one that buys Georgian wine. I only find this out because all the expats are like, you must drink the Georgian wine, but you can't buy it here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. Um, there's like, no, so there's like a little war a few years ago. And so Russia's punishing Georgia by embargoing the import of their wine, which is crushing to them because Georgia's the only one to drink. Georgia's the only one to buy So now right. there's no one to sell to. And all of a sudden my policy brain, because I did go to school, right? and my food brain just exploded. I was like, wait, you're telling me that wine is geopolitical? And I had never thought one country would punish another one by stopping the supply the of export. wine. Right. Shocking. And I'm like, wait, this is clearly my path. And uh -huh. so I decided I would go back to D.C. and have my own little Putin protest, and I would sell as much Georgian wine as I possibly could. <laughs> so but was it hard to bring it in, to import it? No, some of the first people I was introduced to same thing, just always right. looking for people to talk to me, um, was a big Georgian wine importer. Um, Georgian Winehouse is the right. of the company. It's such a guy with Noel. Yeah, Noel okay. and Mamuka. No, yeah, um, okay. <laughs> Excuse me. They are the best humans. Mm -hmm. the They're yes. not dear friends. But they started, and Mamuka in particular, owns Georgian Winehouse, is a college professor, is the president of the Georgian American Business Council. All he wants is for Americans to know more about Georgia and understand it. And he, it's his life work. And I think box checked, like between you and Noel and like so many people. Supra. Yes, yeah, Supra, but no, I mean, like I said, you put Kachapari on the map in DC. Yes, I do. Um, and I just think, you know, there's so much more knowledge out there. Thanks to that. Oh, I appreciate it. And, and passionate, all the people that came back, the folks that own Supra, they lived in Russia too. They're right. Americans who lived in Russia and they came back and they're like, wait, everyone needs to know about Georgia. Right. And so, yeah, there's a lot of storytelling, a lot of history. And hopefully for people, look, I get how privileged I was to have that experience. So part of it is not everybody gets to go to 30 countries, especially some of like Georgia, like I said, Belarus, right. places, I mean, Estonia. So by bringing some of these things back, I hope that I'm inspiring people to travel. And I can tell you anecdotally at Compass, nothing makes me happier than talking to a table and they tell me that they went to Georgia because they learned about it at Compass Rose. Right. That is mission accomplished. I'm like, okay, job, I'm done. Right. But <laughs> I think that's so in. amazing, right? Yeah. And people do need to know that there aren't like just 20 places in this world to I go know. to. There's so much to that see. That is my life's work, through food and wine, because mm -hmm. they're the most approachable things. Like they're the things you have to do. Well, you don't right. have to do wine, but you have to eat. Right. And so I can get in your head and I can tell you my stories and try to convince you to believe these things that people at the end of the day want the same things and that we're all really connected. It's ways. I mean, there that. is a real breaking, breaking bread really real. means something. It you know, it's does. really, really real. And I think that brings us to uh, your book, your gorgeous book. If you haven't had a chance to see it, I'm going to break the wall. I love that your outfit actually matches it. I oh, know no, you I didn't even think it. Are you no, sure? Right, you're right so there. good. Maybe you there did. There you go. Okay. So <laughs> what was the impetus? Did, because you opened up Carpet Club. You have, I have to remember, Go There Wines. You just opened up Medina. We'll get to Medina in a second. Oh, okay. But I want to talk about why do a cookbook? Why do it now? Well, I actually started a long time ago. Because as okay. you know, these take like two years to do. Right. And I had had the introduction to a cookbook agent before COVID. Okay. And so it was actually, this has been in the works for a long time. Uh -huh. And so no intention. I would have had it out a couple of years ago if it wasn't for the pandemic. But sure. that slowed things down. Uh -huh. But it was a dream I've always had. My um, Going back to my parents, they, they love that I talk about this so much. Okay. Um, 
my dad was not like my mom. He loved recipes. My mom hates recipes. She's okay. Like, Memory is how I do this. Mm. My dad's like, no, no, no. We will learn from the books. And so he and I used to read cookbooks together. He has 14 years of Gourmet Magazine bound copies. Because, you know, he didn't know the internet was coming. Right. Um, I had them too. I literally just got rid of all my Gourmet. Oh. Like recently. I just... No, we keep them anymore. They're taking up so much room. They were taking up so much room. Years, but we used to read them together. I get and it. And so I really appreciated what cookbooks taught me about food outside of my home because mm -hmm. we really only made Italian and Lebanese food. Like that's okay. It. So all of a sudden I'm reading French books. I'm reading about fancy Italian, not red sauce, right. American Italian, right? And so it was really a window into like another place. So I wanted to create a book that maybe someone like me, a little girl somewhere in a small town in Ohio, right. will read this book and also go travel. But that's, I think... What you're saying there is very important. This is a book to read. There is a story. This is stories. a real storybook. Yeah. Punctuated with recipes and fabulous photos, by the way. Let's, all Gentry's. Um, all Jen did a great job. She did it. They're beautiful. So let's, how'd you break it down? How did you, do you, because I don't feel that this is an unapproachable cookbook at all. Great. But if you're looking to engage with people who maybe aren't familiar or they see the name Maidan, they don't understand what it means, like, Talk us through sort of the chapters you put together as a way to prepare somebody to, to, to cook food here. Well, one of my favorite things, and I think is the key tip to the book, are look at the tawla. So tawla, and forgive my Arabic for any Arabic speakers, okay. um, but it means table in Arabic. Mm -hmm. And that's the name of the preset meal. Like if you come to Maidan and you don't want to think about what you're ordering, you just tell us you want the preset, you want the tawla, and we just fill the table with food. Right. That was intentional. That's how I grew up eating. All the food's on the table at the same time. It's not coursed. Right. And you're eating with bread. You're eating with your hands. It's mm. like it's this beautiful sharing. You're ripping bread and meat together and all these things. That can be hard for Americans and, and lots of other people who come through Maidan to, to deal with. But so part of our experience at the restaurant is explaining how to eat. Mm. So then I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to do this in right. this book? Right. Because you're not going to have a server sitting there helping you you know, dip your food in the certain different condiments. So um, the publisher let me, after much discussion, have towels in the book. So there's yes. um, the meze table, there is a Lebanese holiday table, and there is the Georgian supra. Right. And if you start with that and work And supra is party, right? It just means feast. Feast. Same thing. Okay, same thing. And, and towel is my version of that, though. It okay. means table. Supra means to feast or festival. Uh -huh. And they're all, like, you start there and then go backwards. Because my... What, all those cookbooks that I have read growing up, they teach you all these beautiful recipes, but they don't tell you how to serve it or what right. to serve it with. Like a dinner party. Exactly. And this, to get that towel of feel from the restaurant, I needed you to see the whole table as it was intended. Uh -huh. And then you can just pull what you want from there. So that's kind of like a work backwards. Like go to the table and then you can number, everything's numbered. You can go right to that page and be like, okay, I want to put the beef brownie on the table with the chicken shish tawuk. And because uh -huh. I saw it, so now I know how to put it all together. Right. So that's kind of one of the big tips and tricks to the book. And then, yeah, obviously- that's a good one. Because, oh, it's really important. Because I think that a lot of people, when they think of restaurants in sort of the, di the diaspora that you're covering, they think more in like dips, you know, appetizers. Like we, we America, we can't help ourselves. You know what I mean? Like we think about like starters yep. and then mains. appetizers, mains, yeah. and then dessert and can feel very overwhelmed by a table filled, do yep. you know what I mean? And not knowing how to how to pace ourselves mm -hmm. through it, which is another so issue. So true, so true. And I admit, there's still, I mean, we have big portions in my own, and I know that. Oh yeah, I mean, the chicken is delicious. But you're meant to bring leftovers, and it like travels really well, and it warms up really well. Mm -hmm. But that was the idea, like just, you know, I hope that makes it more approachable. 
to right. answer your question for people is you'll see the table, you'll see how it's supposed to be. And once you get in there, mm-hmm. you'll realize it's all about mixing and matching the flavors and using the bread as an utensil. That's right. a really important piece for us. Can too. we talk about the bread? Please. Because I feel like sometimes people are afraid of making their own. I, I understand that. You know? It can be hard. Right. This is very approachable bread. Mm-hmm. But please let me, like, this bread was... I love that you call that area in here cards. You're like, all the cards. Uh, yeah, like, like cards, let's not be afraid of cards, no, right? No, I want, like, you can't if you're going to use any, right. like, anything in this book. But um, flat bread, and we just call our bread, we call it tone bread. Mm-hmm. So the oven, we use, like, a tandoori-style oven. Mm-hmm. But tone is the word they use in Georgia. Or okay. that kind of oven. So we call it Tony bread, and that's what it's called in the book. Mm-hmm. It's done in a clay oven where you put the, the dough on the sides of the walls of the, the mm. oven, and then it cooks on the clay, and then you pull it off when it's hot. And that's all fueled by fire, too. So you'll right. see tandoori's in a lot of Indian restaurants, Persian restaurants, mm-hmm. but you will not see them done with fire. I think one of our early reviews was that the bread's inconsistent. Well, it's like, yeah, because every right. flame, it's, there's it's nothing different. consistent about the fire, but that's what we wanted. We right. wanted asymmetrical bread. I want every piece to look different. It tastes all beautiful. And then we did all of our research on how to make it in Georgia. So we contribute the bread very much to Georgia. Mm-hmm. So the recipe's a mix of a bunch of different But countries. so how do you advise people to do it at home? Um, it's all in the oven. Right. Don't be afraid. Right. It's just a simple recipe. It isn't like a, you need a sourdough starter or anything, anything like, that. like that. Because these are all back, like backyard ovens. Mm-hmm. Like people are making this in their very simple kitchen, some of which don't even have running water. Sure. So these recipes so they are could all do it. very you approachable. Could do it. Yeah. Just think about the ladies that taught us how to do this in their backyard. They don't have any restaurant equipment. They don't have anything. So everything here is grandma food. That's what I call right. it. Like, and so if your grandma can make it for a holiday, you mm-hmm. can make it. Is there anything in here that you would say to somebody the story in here that speaks the most to me. Like, I know you cooked with all these different people. You met so many people along your journeys, but some people, some of the stories in here, you just had incredible experiences with people. So would you, can you point out the one or two of them that you were like, this, I thank you. For I loved know. her, and she was so great, and I wanted to stay with her, or I went back to visit her again. Oh, Tell well, me, Tunisia, mm-hmm. second country stop in 2017. This is all done in the summer of 2017. Yeah, we are cooking with a woman in Tunis who's writing with an American woman in DC. The American woman's in DC. That's okay. the connection. Mm-hmm. An English language Tunisia cookbook. Okay, and she invites us in, though she doesn't speak a ton of Arabic or speak a ton of English, and she's going to make harissa with us and. And she's going to teach us her Lisa recipe. And we're in her kitchen. And all of a sudden, she kind of stopped. She's like, so what exactly are you guys doing with this? Like, what, why did you come here to my right. house? And I explained. And she goes, oh, I see. So you're not going to the restaurants where the men are. You're coming to the kitchens because that's where the women are. She goes, well, that's very smart. Oh, <laughs> she goes, I love because that. Because the real good food, the food that you really wanted to try is coming out of the kitchens and women are making it. The restaurants are just the men. So I had a good laugh about that because it was exactly what I wanted everyone to feel about the restaurant. Right. And then I think, again, you're going to get sick of me talking about Georgia, but the other story that was really special is the ribeye recipe. Mm. And the story in there is pretty long, and it's all about a night that we ended up with Noel mm-hmm. at his relative's house in way western Georgia. Right. There's no like hotels or anywhere to stay, so you do home stays. And his family had invited us um, to stay there on the end of our journey after travel. Which is also practice. sort of the culture. Of hospitality. Because their hospitality like, is totally different. Endless hospitality. It's like kind of insane. Well, and that's the whole point. Like, okay, we're like, okay, fine. We'll appreciate you guys will stay in houses. But then they said it's our 30th wedding anniversary and we're going to have this big party. And like Americans were like, oh my God, we can't crash. Right, the party. we can possibly come. So rude. And they're like, you will offend us. It's the opposite there. 
you will offend us if you don't stay. Okay. And so we're so embarrassed because there's like six of us. And right. now we're crashing the 30th wedding anniversary. They said, okay, but you guys want to cook a fire? Here, we'll give you some meat. You guys can cook if you want to contribute. So they give us a little goat and the guys make a fire and like an off store in the backyard. Okay. And so they're cooking in the backyard, the goat, but then we get handed these steaks and everyone looks at each other like these are no realize that we have ever seen. These are mountain cows. They have not been bred. Sure. Were you probably not vaccinated? Like nothing. And we're like, okay, well, let's see where this goes. Right. So we like, go rummage the kitchen and find a couple spices. Georgian blue fenugreek and ajika. Ajika is more like a Georgian paprika, uh -huh. but blue fenugreek is like nothing I've ever had anywhere else. And you can't uh -huh. use the fenugreek in the grocery store that you use a lot of Indian cooking. It's different. Sure. Georgian blue fenugreek. Um, you can get it on Amazon, which is what I recommend in the book. Uh -huh. We just did a dry rub. No, on your sticks. pantry suggestions are amazing. Well, I knew like some of the ingredients are a little, you know, unknown. So I wanted to make sure you knew where to get them, mm -hmm. and they're all easily accessible. Dry rub the steak, put it on the fire. It comes out almost tasting a little like maple syrup. It's hard to explain, but if you've had the ribeye, yes, then you know this taste. But to me, that steak means it's a steak, right? It's delicious, but it really reminds me of that moment that that family was like, no, you guys get the best seats at the party. And I was I, like, I want everyone to watch. I can't see <laughs> but like, it. when you come into mind, that's what I want you to feel like, you know, mm -hmm. like we're going to make room for you. We're going to treat you just like we were treated. And I feel like I need to give that back to the universe. And I, I again, listen, you have been, what did you guys get? I have, all, I have it all done. You've got, you are a 2023 restaurant tour of the year by the Whammies. Yes. Uh, James Beard Award. 2022 Outstanding Wine Program finalist. We're going to get to wines in a second. Michelin Guide 2020. One of the best new restaurants, Bon Appetit 2018. Best Middle Eastern Restaurant Chef, Esquire. GQ, Best New Restaurants in America 2018. Food and Wine. I mean, you got to get it. I mean, yeah, I know, yeah, but it's, but like, first, I don't know. Like, you did the, I just think your story is amazing because you did the work to make that happen. Do you know what I mean? And I think there's a lot of people out there, and I'm not going to say men, but like I think there are a lot of people yeah. out there that are more like, well, I built it and you should come. Or you're like, no, I built it and I want to wrap and waste you in it. Yeah. You know? It makes me happy that it feels that way. Thank you. I, I think it does. It was very much the intention. And I did learn that from the woman that raised me. And uh -huh. so like, if I give that back, like I'm doing my job. Well, and so. it comes across in the book. And the book is amazing. But I do, before we wrap up, I do want to talk about two things so you opened up you opened up in the place where i used to work out and love so much <laughs> i'm sorry it wasn't it just was there i know it's not you it's <laughs> it them wasn't. 305 fitness r.i.p 305 um but uh you opened up medina yes. so talk about what you're doing in medina because it's right across from Medan, but you you're doing it for a specific reason and i, I think we're seeing this it's kind of a national trend of one restaurant opening up to like a sister right next door. So tell us a little bit about it. Oh yeah, we weren't actively looking for a space or anything like that. We'd always loved the idea way before COVID um, of just having somewhere that we could have people sit when they're waiting for a table. Because right. you know my not vestibule, there's not enough room for anybody. No, and, and the bar is packed. And the bar is packed and there's nowhere to stand. So I right. have felt terrible about that back to hospitality. I don't want you to stand on the cold. Right. So we'd always dreamt of having like a little space for mm -hmm. people to sit. And so when the space opened up, the landlord came to us and was like, hey, um, 
would you like a little bit more space? And it was, so some of it is very practical. We needed a little more kitchen prep space sure. because now we had a patio since COVID. Mm-hmm. That was 30 extra seats. My non's kitchen. Is that still there, there, the patio? Yeah. Oh my God, We had to get amazing. a different permit, but we have like yes. 30 extra seats outside. And it's beautiful. Like thank with the rugs. And you did a beautiful well, job. A little, I got to update it. I got to thank you. It's, okay. it's been having a rough winter moment, but we're going to update it in, okay. like, um, in January. But no, it's just nice. And some people still want to sit outside. Like yeah. there are still people that are not comfortable Oh no, outside, there are so people who want to sit outside all the time. It's really important to have it. So, yeah. But the kitchen was made for 100 seats, not 130. So sure. we were really slammed. So part of the reason is a prep kitchen. Very mm-hmm. practical. Now all the prep is done over there. Okay. But then there was a little bit more space. And we're like, you know what? Why so did not? you take over that empty space? So 305 was right yeah. across. And then did you take over? There was like that other space you used to do events in there. Oh, no. I wish I had that one. I know. Oh. That one's still empty. I oh. love that space. I know you did. That's too big. Okay. Um, no, just the cosmetic store that was there. They went out of business. Oh, I'd be wild. Yeah. R.I.P. Right, they, they were so cute. I, I tried know. to buy so much of them. She just reached out to me. They're lovely. She was so great. Um, but they just the beginning of the pandemic. It was yes. like so it was empty for a long time. We put the kitchen kind of over there mm-hmm. and then everything that was the gym is now um, gotcha. Medina. And yeah, I lost my Bedouin tented room at Compass Rose during the pandemic. I had mm-hmm. to take it down because who was gonna be in a little tent right. during the pandemic? And I didn't feel afterward like we made it storage for to go containers because we hadn't had those before. Right. So I just felt like it wasn't supposed to go there again. So mm-hmm. Compass has a little train car private dining room. Sure. And Maidan didn't have anything. And I felt, so this is like the rebirth of the tent. Okay. I did this Moroccan style tent so that reminded it. me of my travels in Morocco. Right. And now it got bigger because it's it's this whole space. And you, so you're under these fabrics. You've got all these cushions and rugs and like, just like very North African feeling vibes. Right. And Medina is a word that I learned in Tunis. We stayed in the Medina, Fez. And then the summer is in Malta. They have, a, I don't know if you've been in Malta, but they have like a really, like, no, but it's very town. hot right now. I had no idea. We were just in Sicily and we bought right. over. So cool. You should totally go if you yeah. have time. And Medina is the old city. And so this word is really powerful. It's like a walled city where all the commerce happens. It's the marketplace. And I really right. like to use the word, um, again, for the meaning. And it's right across the alley from Medina. Right. And everything has this, like, you know, tented, safe, kind of sexy, sultry vibe. And mm-hmm. I call it my own little sister. And so are we eating in there? We're drinking in there? What we are do. we doing? We have some tagines, um, mm-hmm. chicken, lamb, um, vegetable. But we wanted it to be lighter eating, more cocktail. So okay. we have time and space to be a little bit more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so the drink's a little bit more elevated. I love my non cocktail program. But amazing. over here, yeah. it's more like there's a martini cart. We make it right in front of you. Like oh, cute cool. things like that that we don't okay. have space for in my non. So yeah, so a little bit more drink forward and just loungy and like right. not as much a big table full of food, but you can get a meze board with like mm-hmm. Tunisian snacks and just pick with your girlfriends and just whatever. Or you can come in and have a birthday dinner with the tajines if you want. But okay. we're definitely pushing the like late night um, music, dates, stuff mm. like that. Okay. I love it. And so let's talk lastly about wines. So we mentioned definitely the wines, finish. but you, you have launched Go There Wines. Yes. Where are we going? Where, Where are we is going? there? That's it. It's about going physically to travel and going there in conversation. Okay. We want you to get down to the real stuff, which wine helps, right? Yeah. So our attempt at getting people to have conversations about life and the world was a wine company, but it's really an extension of the programs that already exist. So like, you're going to do travel too? Do I sense like you, it's not a travel company, right? No, not yet. I would love it to be, but okay. no, it's I just, feel like. I feel like that's coming for you, but go ahead. Let's, Michelle, let's hope, let's hope. Okay. Um, but no, we, uh, my husband and I, very first project we've ever done together because we're very different industries. Sure. We overlapped here because we wanted the wine company to be, shockingly, here's the theme, 
about storytelling. Sure. We want to tell the story of the winemakers because it's, it's about the wine and the wines are amazing, but the people behind them. And I think that's, that's what we're trying to get across is like, it's not just something to drink to get drunk. Like there's a person, there's a farm, there's a home. There's a whole history. Right. And we want you to meet them. So the wines are named with a quote by the winemaker. And even though I know we're sticking QR codes, the QR code on the bottle takes you right to a video of the winemaker. Right. And everyone, almost every winemaker is female, with the exception of Abdullah, who is a Syrian refugee making wine in exile in Lebanon, who yes. I've gotten to know is an amazing human being. Everyone okay. else is female because everyone on our docket is from a lesser known region and they themselves are what we call a lesser known winemaker because women are still underrepresented. People of color are still underrepresented. Of people of gender diversity, everything is underrepresented. So, so do people go to, talk us through how people access Go Their Wines. At my restaurants. Right. Or online. So that's a big catch. We live in DC. We can go to New York or LA and get all these cool wines. Right. But my friends in Ohio can't yeah. get these wines. So it's direct to consumer. You go online, you order it, it shows up at your doorstep. We have a wine club, so you don't even have to think about it. It'll just mm -hmm. come quarterly. Or you can just buy an individual bottle if you want to try Abdella's Pet Nat or buying Gavance's Amber Wine. Like we try to have like, it's small, it's boutique, but these are the friends that I've made over the years with these really cool wine lists at the restaurants. But now it's more accessible to people. But I also feel like this is also your way of giving back to them. Do you know what I mean? Like they've shared their lives and stories with you and now you're able to amplify it. And That's share it. it with others. That's 100%. Now the access to the rest of the country so more people will learn right. about. And then maybe it won't be unusual for women or gay women to own a company or right. for a wine company or for a black woman in South Africa to own her own wine label. Like we're just, you change the conversation and when more people understand that it's even possible. So right. hopefully by getting to places, Texas, Nebraska, Ohio, there's only four states we can't ship to, including Michigan and New Jersey, actually. I can't remember the other two. Otherwise, everyone in the country now can get these really cool, interesting, natural wines from amazing, inspiring human beings, and they can get to know them by the videos. So I hope, I hope, hope you all enjoy. Thank all right. So, so Rose Previtt. Maidan, the cookbook is uh, in bookshelves uh, mm -hmm. everywhere. Obviously, you can go to the big uh, big websites to get them, but yeah. uh, politics and pros, small bookstores, local, Bold Fork Books, and Mount Pleasant. Oh, great! Like a huge supporter. And oh, man, there's Salt and Sundry has it. Salt and Sundry has it. Well, but also nationally, I'm sure it's at small bookstores. Everywhere. It absolutely is. They've been tagging me on Instagram in Connecticut and Michigan. It's I really love nice. that. Yeah. Okay, um, so tell everybody, please, where they can find you and follow you on all your travels. Uh, and stay up to date with everything you're doing. Thank you. I'm trying to be better about the Instagrams. So I know, you can it's find a pain me. in the neck. I'm like the only Rose Previtt out there because all the other Rose Previtts are 90-year-old Italian grandmothers. Okay. Grandmother, so <laughs> Rose Previtt. Um, yeah, all the all the Instagrams. We're trying to get on TikTok a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but the restaurants are open like almost every day. Mm -hmm. And um, you can find me usually at one of them or on an airplane to Los Angeles. <laughs> all right, Rose, thanks so much thank for joining for me. me. Just hang one second. And thank you for joining me today. Um, Another industry night on the books. This is my last one at uh, the Watermark Hotel because the month of December is ending. Uh, but next month we'll be back with a new place and new faces and new things. And I cannot wait for you to see what comes next. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Don't forget everything you heard here. You can find on the list. Are you on it? The list, are you on it.com or follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on all the social media platforms. Don't forget, if you have any questions you heard here today or on any of the shows, you can just tag me on any of it and we'll be good. Uh, thanks again for joining me today and have a delicious week.
produced by Heartcast Media.